Welcome to Where Others Won't. My guests on this episode are Howard Bihar, former president of Starbucks, and Chip Wilson, founder of Lululemon. Culture is at the core of the success of both of these companies, and that's something that I consider to be going where others won't. Howard, welcome to Where Others Won't. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Chip Wilson is here as well. How are you doing, Chip? Oh, fantastic. Beautiful day in Vancouver and uh, happy to be uh, doing this with Howard. This is going to be a great show. We're going to talk about culture and specifically at scale. We've got uh, the former president of Starbucks and and the founder of, of Lululemon here. So this is going to be a fascinating conversation. Let's start with you, Howard. In your tenure at Starbucks, the company grew from 28 stores to over 15,000, including international expansion. And most people are familiar with the current culture, or I guess you'd call it the modern culture of Starbucks and the customer experience. But I'd love to hear what it was like when it was 28 stores when you first arrived and, and how it really differed from, if at all, what we see today. It actually, it differed a lot. And, you know, every entrepreneur starts out with an idea and it's a product, a service, whatever it happens to be. And uh, Starbucks, when Howard took over Starbucks, it was actually only six stores. And, you know, he was, he was a committed coffee guy. And the whole company was really focused around coffee. And people were kind of, it wasn't that people were treated poorly, they were treated well, but, but nobody ever talked about people. And I came into the company and, you know, I wasn't there a month and I said, you know, the coffee's important, but this is, this is a people business. I mean, it really, you know, the coffee business really is, if there's any business that's a people business, it's the coffee business. Because you consume a cup of coffee you know, with a friend, having a conversation with yourself, thinking about your life, reading a newspaper, you know, having it sit warm in your hands, or you, maybe you're doing some work on your computer. And, but it, it really is, you know, a people business. And I, I coined this phrase and it, that we weren't in the coffee business serving people, but we were in the people business serving coffee. That sounds like it's a little play on words, but that, I was trying to get people to understand the coffee was important. It was our art, you know, uh, but it wasn't the reason we were there. We were there to serve people, you know, serve each other and then serve those, those human beings we call customers. And that's what really, that's what really drove the business. And that became, that became the rallying cry that we, we are in the people business serving coffee. Even to this day, they still use that same phrase. Uh, and it, shows you how it's, it's so important to remind ourselves of why, why we do what we do. And, you know, we talk about, there's so much talk about purpose, you know. And, you know, very few people in companies really know the purpose of the organization. You know, they, they, they know that it's there to make money, you know, but they, they don't know the real reason why it's there. And, again, that's, in my opinion, it always has been to serve human beings no matter what you're selling, whether you're selling clothes or whether you're selling coffee or selling cars or you're a doctor or a dentist, there's only one role that any of us have in our lives, and that's to serve others. And so we just drove that home. And that, that, that in, in the early days, it wasn't like that. You know, we were, we were, I remember I got this letter. It was actually from a person in Vancouver. She was a customer at the Robson and Thurlow store, the old store. And... 
said, you know, I can go a lot of places to get a cup of coffee, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't need your people telling me how much they know about coffee all the time. And we were kind of arrogant about that, you know. We wanted to let everybody know that we were smart. And I remember asking her to come down to the office in Seattle. We had a group meeting with the few store managers that we had and and uh, district managers that we had, and and I had her talk about what she meant. And she told talked to us about the fact that you know she wanted to feel like she was a valued human being, not just somebody with a dollar bill pasted to their her forehead. And that began a dialogue within the company of who we were and really who we were about. So, you know, change happens. You know, I worry, my biggest worry about Starbucks is, is that it loses that, that it loses that, that piece that makes it unique, which is this caring place. And um, it, it's, not to, it's not about customer service, but human service. It's really interesting you say that. And... You know, I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and obviously, and Chip, you've lived in Australia and you've probably seen this firsthand as well, but the coffee culture down there is is very established. You know, a lot of immigration after the war and so coffee just became part of the culture and it's very strong there. And, you know, as I was growing up, I remember Starbucks coming in and, and having to close stores in the end because they couldn't compete with what were essentially ma and pa coffee shops where, like you said there, Howard, you know, they knew your name and they knew your order and it was more than that, but it was, you know, they would have a conversation with you about just what was going on in your life and um, the, the power of that, um, it was just uh, amazing. And it was it was interesting to see. It was the first time we'd seen Starbucks and, and to see them, you know, a couple of years later closing stores. Yeah, uh, I mean, thanks for bringing that up. You're make, making my day. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> uh, that was a disaster. We couldn't have done more things wrong than we did in Australia. The market was there. You know, McDonald's was there, had, had these Mac cafes. But the rest of the marketplace was, you're right, it was all kind of small independence. And it's, um, anyway, we really screwed that market up. And, and they're still there, but uh, going one step at a time. But, you know, you don't win them all. You, you do the best you can. And, uh, and that was, that was, an embarrassment to me, an embarrassment to the company, but such is life. I don't think it should be an embarrassment. I think that they, as opposed to Canada and the U.S., I think Australia had the espresso culture with the Italians and the Greeks, and that was there. And I think that it's very hard to, you know, Starbucks would have had to move in. They already had the good product there. Then you had to win on what you were talking around people, but. I, I think that uh, in Canada and the U.S., that just the great product that Starbucks had just didn't exist. And then to be able to put something phenomenal on it with that, um, you know, putting like Howard says, putting people first was was really the icing on the cake that made the company what it is. No, I couldn't agree more. Who was to anticipate that that was uh, the way it was going to go? Um, but let's talk to you, Chip. Uh, you know, on on we talked about you know, small cultures and, and a lot of people aren't familiar with West Beach, you know, the company that you ran for about 18 years before Lululemon. Um, but in your book, you talk about running West Beach as a, as a one-man team, talking of small cultures. Uh, so how did that experience shape your views on creating that culture when you eventually started Lululemon? Well, <laughs> You know, I think I started West Beach when I was 25. I was immature. I was, uh, 
uh, in survival mode all the time. I was thinking about me and I wasn't thinking about other people. I think I'd, um, I think I'd often put out ideas out into the world and I found that people didn't agree with, you know, where I thought the future was going. So I, I think I developed this thing that if it's got to be, it's, it's, it's up to me, so to speak. And, um, <clears throat> that was relatively successful, but only, you know, like, you know, I spent 20 years not making any money. So if that's, if you call that relatively successful, but, um, I think it's selling West Beach and then, and then really kind of like spending a year, you know, self-analyzing and taking courses. And as I was saying to Howard earlier, I, I took a job in Portland. So every weekend I'd come back up to Vancouver and spend so 10 hours in a car listening to every audio I could possibly find. And, um, and really coming to the, to a bridge in life that if it's, um, that's really about everybody else, um, you know, before me. And mm-hmm. very difficult when you don't have any money and you're trying to make the mortgage payments and you got a couple of kids and, and um, you know, so to actually, to actually decide that everyone's more important than I am and everyone's going to succeed before I'm going to succeed was really the bridge that I crossed and it ended up being successful. So... The 20 years I spent at West Beach, I think, was arduous with people. I didn't know how to manage people. I didn't know how to motivate them. And, and um, of course, I would have thought I was perfect and uh, everyone else was wrong. And uh, But still, I came to the conclusion that if I was going to go into a new business, I wanted to develop people. I wanted to go to business every day with people I'd love to be with. And so then to set up a training program based on that, and so when I listen to Howard talk about Starbucks and about the customer, I, and me, for, for me, it was more about um, having incredible employees and um, employees that were self-developed, um, had forgiven their parents for everything that their parents did wrong for them in their <laughs> lives, you know, and, and, then, and then setting up goal setting and, you know, we had terms and definitions, but really making it so that our, our employees were so phenomenal. They could make their own decisions. They were self-motivated. They were driven. And, um, and then I found that work was just so much fun. And I find that they, the customers then were gravit- they gravitated to Lululemon. I mean, probably maybe for the same reasons they were gravitated to Starbucks. It was just something different about the experience that you couldn't quantify with numbers. Right. Yeah, particularly I think you. Coffee was everywhere, you know. When, but it was just a different way of serving it. Uh, but with yeah. you, you know, you were, you know, I think at the beginning you were seen as a, a niche player, but no longer. Right? It was a little lemon, a niche, just a little niche player, right? You, my son's favorite pants come from little lemon. <laughs> That's great. Say hi to him and say thanks. So just to riff on that idea a little bit, because ultimately what you're talking about, Chip, in in that second iteration and around empowering others and and serving, you know, the staff that you bring in to work within the company and and building the culture around them and, and serving them is, you know, Howard, you've been you know long on on servant leadership and on on teaching. Uh, 
what it espouses to others and, and kind of preaching from that book. I, I'd love your kind of impressions on, on why that's important, um, particularly nowadays, um, you know, within the workplace, that idea of servant leadership, because it's starting to become a, a buzzword, but, you know, I, I'm pretty adamant that we keep it away from being another workplace fad. Well, yeah, it, it, it couldn't go down that track, but I don't think it's going to. I think that in today's world with millennials working and with the next generation, they want, they want to do something that's bigger than themselves, you know, and they want to be treated with respect and dignity. And servant leadership, is, you know, at its basic core is about one thing, and that's about serving your people. There, you know, Robert Greenleaf, when he came up with the term servant leadership, you know, he was he was the head of organizational development at AT&T in the 40s and 50s. And when he retired, he looked back at his career and he was trying to figure out who are the great leaders and who are the leaders that weren't so great and why. And he came to the conclusion it was the leaders that somehow in, intrinsically understood that it was their job to serve their people you know, and to help help their people gain what they wanted out of their lives, that those people would commit to not only their leader, but commit to the organization. And they were the ones, when they left their organizations, their organizations continued on and still were successful. The ones that didn't do that, but, but thought that their people were there to serve them, their organizations fell apart mm-hmm. after they left. And it, it, it Funny how such a you know it's a big thing, but it's kind of a little thing too. And so servant leadership is, you know, I think it's here to stay. I think people want it, and you know, people think that it's it's this soft fuzzy stuff. It's anything but. Servant leadership is about performance, you know, and got to get the job done. And it's about honest, open dialogue. But it's with open, honest, open dialogue with love and care in your heart. Even if you have to fire somebody that isn't just isn't making it, it can be done with love and caring in your heart. You should you should you should treat them as well going out of the company as you treated them coming into the company, and that's the basis of servant leadership. Uh, you know, I've always hated uh, Howard how when I had to fire somebody, you know, and I, I would have loved to have um, had a conversation with them you know, to, to let them go um, with, you know, as powerfully as I can. But it seemed like the litigation and the laws and, uh, you know, wouldn't let me do that. You know, it had to be very scripted, very, uh, very unpersonable. And how did you handle that? Like you, A lot of times that's the attorneys talking, you know, and telling you what you have to do. I mean, you, you know, there should never be a surprise when you're letting somebody go. You know, they should, you know, come in because you should have had numerous conversations. And when it comes to the time for somebody having to leave, you know, that that's just a continuance of the conversation. And, you know, sure. I always found that I could tell people how I respected them, but that they just didn't fit. And there's, there's a better place for them someplace else, but it wasn't going to work here. It didn't mean I'm not telling you that every time I let somebody go that it was a perfect ending. No. Uh, but most of the time it was, uh, because we had always had previous conversations, and there were no surprises. That's the big. What gets people the most is when there are surprises. And but 
I used to hear that from the attorneys too, and you got to do this, you got to do that. But you know, at all the times, I I never got sued once. I I let hundreds of people go over, thousands of people go probably over my lifetime. Do you think we're doing enough, Howard, to to educate managers? Let's call them incoming managers, first time managers, on this kind of dialogue. You know, like the the traditional model would say that. You know, I, I work, I come out of college at 22, probably work until I'm 35, 40, and then, you know, a, a leadership role is bestowed upon me with an organization. And at that point, I wouldn't have really delivered any performance-based um, dialogue or tough uh, conversations with, with anyone where I was actually leading the conversation. So is that one of the major roadblocks to this, do you think? People don't like delivering tough news, you know. It's, it's, they're, they're, they're fearful of it. They're, they, they want to be liked, you know, they, uh, you know, they, all those, those things go together, but, and we don't teach them how to do it. And it takes practice. You know, I didn't know it when I was 20 years old, but by the time I was 30, I had some, you know, I had somebody that really cared about mentoring me and he taught me how to do it and what to do. And it wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't manipulation. It was about just, constantly being open and honest with people. You know, I have this sign in my office. I have a quote guy, and I have quotes all over. And one of my favorite quotes is, only the truth sounds like the truth. <laughs> I, try to live, I try to live my life like that and, and to live it with, my, with the people that report to me or the people in the organization. And, no, I don't think we do enough to teach people how, how you know, look at, think about it in a family. How many spouses will have real honest conversations with their, with their significant other or their spouse? Right. Very few. And usually what happens is it, when they do it, it's a blowout because they don't know how to, to love people in that side of that conversation. You know, it becomes the blame game. And once you get to the blame game, then, then you know, everything goes away. If I was blaming employees for being bad, you know, then, you know, when I fired them, then they were, you know, of course, they were going to be mad. But, you know, if we both took responsibility and there were no surprises and we were constantly having conversations, not not just, you know, you can't have a conversation once a quarter. You know, it's every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's how I made it anyway. So. Yeah, I think I was more immature than Howard. And I, you know, I always felt like, you know, something's wrong here and I don't know what, and I would always be self-inspective, you know, and look inside myself and, you know, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And I could never really come to the fact that, you know, like at least probably 80% of the time, it was the person just wasn't right for the job. And as Howard says, you know, they, they have a lot of freedom going somewhere else and, and, um, you know, maximizing what they're, um, expertises in life, I guess I would say. I had a lot of, um, it took me time to, to learn that and to recognize when somebody was, was actually underperforming, not, you know, because they just weren't the right person for the right job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's sometimes what happens. You know, we, uh, we wait too long to make changes and it really hurts the organization because when people when people that are there who are performers see people that are not performers staying around, they begin to wonder, you know, and that that hurts the total organization. But it, it kind of 
love in your heart, you know, not with blame, not with any of those mm -hmm. things. Yeah, prefaced against performance is the key, really. Um, and yet, like you said, the the daily practice of it. And one of the things that I've seen be really effective is, you know, really the democratization of, uh, I guess, culture and discipline and accountability uh, amongst the teams. So it's not just, um, you know, once the manager leaves, everyone just uh, slacks off and, and kind of goes about their own thing. But everyone within each individual team keeps everyone else up to scratch. And and that requires those daily interactions. Um, you know, are you okay? Uh, is there something I can help with? Starts coming from the most junior member of the team, right, right the way up. And and obviously, it's the the manager's responsibility to keep that on track. But there's no reason why uh, let's call them a rookie employee can't come in and and still have those conversations. Oh, you can learn, and they have to be taught. One of my favorite books is uh, uh, called Fear. Uh, Fierce Conversations by Susan, forget her last name, but just about that, about to have that conversation. And it's as equally as valid at home as it is at work. One of the unique things that you talk about, Chip, in, in your book is um, the amount of women that worked at Lululemon and and kind of factoring in that you know the the talent base that you had and, and things like maternity leave where you know you could have a key people within your organization leave as you're scaling for, you know, two out of three years. Um, and you kind of had to put measures in place to, to train new leaders and managers within the business all while you were scaling, all while you were trying to kind of develop, um, you know, the, the culture and the practices within the organization. So what, what was that time like for you in trying to navigate what is a really unique circumstance? Well, I think maternity was part of it, but I think uh, like Starbucks, we were a very fast growing company. And um, I think that, you know, the speed of that, you know, took care of a lot of, uh, a lot of mistakes that we made, but we really set the company up, uh, you know, again, off the, one of the first books was the E-Myth, the entrepreneurial myth. So it was really setting our store up, like our business up like a franchise so that we could grow fast. But inside of that was the documentation of how to uh, build uh, and develop people. And we really wanted everyone to be a leader. So rather than waiting, as I think most companies did for that five, 10, 15 years for someone to show up like they were gonna be like uh, a leader of the company in the future, we, we just assumed everyone was a leader right off the bat. And, um, and then we put about $2,000 into them um, through different courses, books, audios, training, development, goal setting. And, um, and we just found that that 20 to 30 year old uh, single woman, which was just kind of a professional woman, which was just coming into their own in 1998 to probably 210, was really hungry for it and took it and, and, and really went, uh, you know, it took the whole company to a, to a whole different level. But I'd like I'd like to say inside of that what what I what I discovered about myself uh, when I was 25 was um, and I took it into Lululemon is that I mean, probably 60 percent of my brain power was taken up by you know will I ever get married will I ever have kids will I get a mortgage will I be able to pay for the mortgage what about sick sick parents um, will I you know what am I going to do on the holidays will I get a date on Friday night. 
Um, do I look good? Am I dressed all right? You know, do I live in the right city? You know, and all those things that I, that as a 25 year old, how ineffective I was to the, to the company that I was working for. Um, and so I set out to kind of like figure out how can we take that so a, uh, an employee can be thinking 90% about how they're going to be successful at the company. And those same, um, those same steps are also make the person successful in their own life. And not only do they make more money and more successful at work, but also their personal relationship with their wives and their, their wife and their family is, is, um, is calm so that when they're at work, they're actually being at work. I mean, I could talk for a long time, but <laughs> um, anyway, it ended up that we could, we could grow and I could send a, basically a 24 year old to um, Miami to open up a store, maybe our first store in Florida and they would do phenomenal. And, uh, and I was always impressed by the ability for, for people once they learned how important responsibility was and integrity and making the right choices uh, were to them that they could, they could really be a, um, um, you know, just a spectacular leader. And so many of those women then end up being, you know, CEOs of other companies and going on to, I think, really change the, what's now called the women's movement, I guess. I think you did so much more than that. Nobody can mistake it. And, and your people understood it. And, I mean, that's why there was such a buzz, you know, for Lululemon. And it's still there today. And, uh, you know, that was something that you, you put into place. And I think it's one of the mistakes that, that most uh, business leaders uh, make is that they don't, they, they are either unable to or they don't take the time to really uh, attach their people to the greater purpose of the organization. And your whole organization was about up with women, right? It was about respect of women. And, and all your people understood that and the marketplace understood it because it was so clear. You know, I'd like to, you know, something within that is that even the women at the very beginning in 1998, they, it was never about women's groups. It was never about women's awards. They never talked about themselves being unequal to men. And I think that's the, that was really the power behind Blue Lemon is they, is they knew they could do it and they went ahead and did it. And I, I often say that they, you know, they weren't the, because of the way we developed them, they never wanted to pat on the back, but they really, they were really out to make a difference and they were really out to make a contribution in the world. And as Howard, you were saying about purpose, you know, our purpose was to elevate the world from a place of mediocrity to greatness by developing our people and having them interact in the community. And, and we were, we were really strong on it. And I think you guys are, I mean, Starbucks is also very strong on it and it's, and I think maybe from this podcast, if anyone took anything away from that, you know, like getting to the purpose, uh, the getting the purpose of the company to the employees so they can disseminate it into the community may be one of the most important brand tools there is. And understanding that it it really does filter away from the workplace as well. I think that the the popular discourse around this topic is that, you know, once people leave work, they kind of go about their business. But the reality is, is that they 
represent your brand when they go to parties on Saturday night, like you were talking about Chip or go to the movies or wherever they are, um, they become advocates. And um, that's something that to this day, uh, you know, for myself with, uh, with my friendship group, there's a lot of current Lululemon staff and former Lululemon staff. And it's still something to this day that rings strong with them uh, in terms of the impact that the company and the culture had on them. So I, I think that's a, a massive hat tip to, to you and the leadership group that you're able to create that. Um, one question that I have, because I get asked this a lot when I, I talk or when I'm just on other podcasts, and I'm interested from a, you know, you've both got consumer businesses or that's been your, your kind of, uh, your rearing. This employee first versus customer first and whether one needs to even be first, whether we can do both. But, um, you know, there's, there's obviously businesses that are so ardently customer first and then there's others that look internally and say, well, if I can, you know, like we were just talking about, educate my staff on the inside, they will then go and, um, and have an impact on the customer. So, so Howard, let's, Howard, let's start with you on that. Where do you stand on employee first versus customer first? Do we need to choose? Well, I'll give you an example that I think makes it clear. So because we're kind of in a food and beverage business, you know, we had lots of people coming in every day. Our, our customers that would come in the most were coming in 18 times a month. So they would develop relationships. With mm-hmm. And we had many young women that worked in our stores. And sometimes a, man, a young man or an older man would come in and do something that was inappropriate. Uh, with with a, one of our baristas, and we we had no room for that. We we would stand up for our people, and we had, many times had to invite customers not to come back because of how they acted within the stores. Their people, and our we weren't going to have our people abused just to make a buck. And so, at the end of the day, I think that your people have to come first because. They, uh, if, if they don't, right, then what's the example they get? If, if it's done right, then, you know, they come first, but immediately after that comes the customer, and they know that, and they practice that, and they live that. And, and it's, it goes back to that deal. It's not about customers and employees. It's about human beings serving human beings. Right. Making that work is what's really important, but... If you ask me to choose, I'm always going to choose the human being that works for the company first, because I think that's the only way to, that you're really going to serve that other human being. I agree with you. And Chip, what about you? Where, where do you stand on employee first, customer first? Do we need to choose? Well, thanks, Howard, for going first there and helping me out. I had to think it through. You know, and I go back to when I worked for an oil company back in Calgary in the 80s, and they would send me to courses to learn, uh, you know, not only just about the business, but how to be a better manager and that type of thing. But I could never, either wasn't at the age to absorb it, and I didn't understand why. And then I I kind of came to a revelation that, you know, it's really, um, if they would have taught me to, to be a, um, a decent human being, uh, you know, and why integrity works and 
why complaining doesn't work and why, you know, what, like, what is it about standard functions of being a human being that, that are getting in my way of being great? So I took it even a step further than, um, than just the employee. I decided that we had to make the employee's family work. So we trained them to be great with their family you know, in communication and leadership and uh, enrollment and, and all those things. And then we felt that if we could make their family work, then it was impossible for them to walk into the doors of the company and not be the same person. And then if they could be that person inside of the company, then that automatically That's went really to the it. customer. You know, and so that was our that theory. That begins and ends with the whole, the family and the people, the person working in the organization. Absolutely. And I, I was at a, a sports conference, sports leadership conference recently in Las Vegas. And I was talking to one of the guys from the Vegas Golden Knights and they obviously had tremendous success in their first season in the NHL and w what was essentially a startup in a very, very mature league, you know, to have the team go to the, to the Stanley cup is, um, probably still underrated. Um, but one of the things or a couple of things that they were talking about was just how they would look after the partners. So all of a sudden you've got guys that are completely uprooted and moving to Las Vegas. Um, and you know, they would bring in the partners for cooking lessons and, um, you know, do all these different things when the guys were out on the road so that it was a real community. And so, you know, what you see as the on ice product and they obviously made the Stanley cup final, they won a lot. But it seems that was just indicative of this overall culture of looking after just more than the player and actually bringing the families into a hockey environment and not overlooking the fact that, you know, hockey performance isn't just how fast you can skate and, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, critical. I think that's how best teams win. I'm also so impressed by the Patriots. I just have to say how... There just seems to be a whole team of uh, players there and, and no real leader. And I always remember this quote, like a leader is forgotten. Um, you know, it could be, the, it could be the caretaker, it could be the barista, it could be the, you know, the CEO. That's but, leadership. Um, you know, again, <laughs> that part about really putting other, you know, other people first. That's why I like, and you know, the name of this right. podcast, Where Others Won't, right. was just Anybody named after my here. book. And that was what my book was about, was this idea that if we're looking for ideas for the, the business world, I see sports as being at the forefront of that because we've always been inward facing. So employee first versus customer first has never been a thing in, in sports. It's always been employee first. And we've just had to make the most out of the talent that we have within our team, regardless of whether you've got the amount of talent that the Patriots have or Manchester United, it doesn't really matter. Um, and I think there are a, a whole range of ideas there, but, um, yeah, I mean, not, not overlooking everyone within the broader family, I think is a key one that we can take away and maybe even look at replacing some of the employee benefits or perks that we're throwing at people like foosball's tables with, um, you know, maybe something for the partners or the kids of, of the staff that you're, you're hiring. Sorry, yeah. Steve. In China, all the parents' health care benefits. Right. Love that. Let's flip to the other side of the coin and, and wow. I just want to talk briefly wow. about when things go wow. wrong because, you know, we talk a lot about culture and 
um, you know, I've been kind of looking at a far, uh, uh, you know, places like Silicon Valley and, and companies like Google. And I use this example a lot and I don't mean to slight Google at all, but I'm kind of more interested in Google now that, you know, there's, um, you know, staff out on the street and there's, there's walkouts and things like that. And now I'm interested in how the culture stacks up. Um, and obviously, you know, both your companies have had ups and downs and, and gone through, um, you know, uh, gone away from potentially that, that core idea and the core message and the core brand uh, or the DNA, if you want to call it that. H- how do we get things back on track, um, you know, once things do go a little bit awry? And they don't need to be massively awry, but, um, you know, as we bring new people into the organisation, I think it's partially inevitable that you do slip up somewhere along the line. But, um, Howard, let's start with you. Uh, you know, how once we get away from our core message, how do we get these organizations back on track with their core culture? Well, you have to make, you have to take a look at yourself. Right. Organizations get off track because leadership gets off track. You know, the organization doesn't just get off track because of itself, it's because leaders aren't paying attention. And so the first thing that needs to happen is you need to look inside yourself as, as a leader of an organization and then have your leadership team look inside itself. And, and ask that question again, why are we here? And usually that's what happens. We get you, you forget why you're there. You know, and it goes from you become a public company and all of a sudden, you know, you're there to serve shareholders. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, we do, we do have shareholders and we do have to serve them in some way, but that's not our reason for being. And so it's, it's really uh, the ability to, to do self-reflection in a formalized way and an informalized way, and 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 then ask. You know, your people can tell you everything you want to know. I I anything if I wanted a good answer to it, if I wanted the best answer I could get for a question about what was going on in the stores, the first person I'd ask was a store barista, because they knew more about it than anybody. And so when when uh, when it, when it got off, like when I first came back, that's who I started talking to. I started the people in, in, that were, you know, in the, in the trenches, and they they can tell you everything. You know, they would say to me, "Well, I just don't feel like my boss cares about me." Mm-hmm. You know, and then you start to build on that. But it's it's leadership's responsibility to do self-reflection, to ask great questions, and then once they figure out where it is they are. And where there's a gap between where they are and where they want to go, then they need to t- start taking the steps that, that brings it back to where they want it to be again. It's hard to do. Once your organization gets off, really gets off, it's really difficult. That's why, you know, recruiting people from the outside is so hard because everybody comes with their own stuff. Yeah. Anytime we make a mistake at Starbucks and, you know, with, with hiring a high-level executive that just didn't understand the greater purpose of the organization, know how much we talked about it and couldn't practice it. And eventually either had to make, either had to help the person change or he had to make a change with the person. And they could, they could throw, uh, they could throw a culture off, maybe not for the whole company, but certainly for the area that they had responsibility for. And so again, it's, it's introspectum, reflection, and being aware and then being willing to make the changes need to be made. 
so easy to slip into that kind of protectionism as well, isn't it, as the leader? Um, whereas hopefully if you've fostered that environment of open and honest conversations, uh, they continue even when things aren't going bad. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here is, is how do you, even when things do go off track, you know, the behaviours and beliefs that you've set out for the organisation, do they continue or does everyone just go back into their shell and stop having those open and honest conversations or stop looking after customers or whatever it may be and just kind of go introspective and, and look after themselves? Yeah, and most of the problems are not when things are going bad, although those cause a lot of headaches, but it's when things are going good, all of a sudden you think you're, you're invincible, you know, and you don't need to pay attention, but that's when you need to pay the most attention. <laughs> Howard, I'm, I'm listening to you and hyperventilating, you know, going back in history. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I think the, you know, the great statement Howard made is that, you know, we forgot why we were there. And, um, and it is right. I mean, the, you know, the, both companies started to do so well, so fast, so much money is being made and everybody's happy and uh, nobody wants to, um, no one wants to shake it up. And, um, you know, we, we ended up, we couldn't fire, uh, you know, culturally bad people. You know, we were just, we needed them too badly to make, we were making money and there wasn't the fortitude from our board or CEO to fire those people. And uh, I wish we had. I always like that line that if firing good people is easy and firing great people is hard. It was really those great people that were really making a lot of money for the company, but you know, deep down they were they were um, uh, you know they weren't the culture of the company, and and that at the end of the day we make less money. Um, I also found that we were you know we went through a period. Uh, both Starbucks and, and Lululemon, but I, I know from our point of view, there was that time when social media came on and nobody knew how big it was. And nobody knew if it was important to listen to or not. And there wasn't the whole conversation about untruth in journalism and 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 nobody, you know, we didn't, no one knew the, the water we were swimming in. And so, um, you know, I know for us, uh, you know, we had design meetings, so we'd have one meeting in every city every year. So it ended up being maybe about 300 um, uh, meetings with about eight people. So we would interview our managers, we'd interview our uh, some you know eight customers, and then we'd interview eight people who we you know who we used as testers. And the whole thing ended up being about three hours every night, and that is where the goal was in the company and what had Lululemon stay ahead. Because one thing for sure is, you know, Lululemon started to be run by surveys. And I kind of go back to this, this thing about the Four Seasons. About eight or eight years or so, I always stayed at the Four Seasons and I started getting by surveys. And I went, this is fascinating. I mean, I just do not have time to, to, to fill out surveys. And as a Four Seasons customer, you know, I don't think those people, they're making too much money and their time is too valuable to be doing that. So I go, who's filling out the surveys? And it's probably the people that are showing up for weddings or there's, you know, some kind of convention type of thing where it's paid for them. And I'm going, are you getting the right information from the surveys? Um, 
to actually, and if that was running the company, everybody wants more data. If we only had more data, everything would be great. You know, I, I say sometimes I use this kind of a joke in some of the speeches I give. I say, if your wife comes home and she looks at your face and says, you know, I'm unhappy in this relationship, you really need any more data? Uh, but it's, there's a, a saying in sports science that more isn't better, better is better. And that's about lifting weights and, uh, and building muscle in athletes. But it's true of data as well. And I think we're in a little bit of a weird spot with that as well. I couldn't agree more with you, Chip. The, I, I'm so skeptical of any, any sort of survey, whether it's yeah employee survey or customer survey, it's, it's really hard to, to see the point of it. And um, building on top of that, even going back to the last idea around recruitment and, and its place in the whole thing in terms of um, making decisions within our organizations, I see that as another massive gap. And we kind of haven't changed recruitment at all, even though we've moved away from kind of the old world methodologies, we're still recruiting similarly to how we were in the old days. And I see that as problematic going forward as well in terms of just trying to shoehorn this new uh, cultural landscape into the old world of just sitting down and asking people questions one-on-one. Um, you know, I think all those things snowballed together, uh, potentially problematic for, for organizations. Yeah, I kind of got a solve on that. I, my, my experience is is, you know, the company's growing, we're young, um, and, you know, the common thought is you need to bring someone in from the outside who's, who's built a bigger company, knows how to do it, knows what, what processes to put into place so the company doesn't kind of falter and grow. And I, and I think that, that thinking, of course, is, is totally appropriate. If I had to do it again, though, I would have, the people that we had in our company that understood the brand and the culture and the you know, the reasons why the company actually was differentiated, I would have had them be the, like the CEO, and I would have hired those people that actually knew more and were older with more experience. I would have had them be the COO and paid them more. So their ego stays in place. But I would never, never. Yeah, you're onto something there. Um, Change of gears here, guys. This is how we kind of start to wrap up all of our, episodes away from business and all these different things the the books that you've gotten and the work that you do on a day-to-day basis what's hot in your world like what's intellectually stimulating you at the moment away from kind of the workplace it could be anything could be the history of pianos or something obscure but um chip like what, what are you looking at at the moment what's what's keeping you uh stimulated that you might not have known before like what are you learning about Well, I don't think he can escape this uh, movement that seems to be occurring at the vision in our in our world between the wealthy and the and the, I guess the non-wealthy, if you want to occur that way, or more like the, the the large conversation of socialism, even kind of veering into communism, um, which I think naturally occurs when there becomes a, a such a wide division in 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 uh, in um, uh, salaries or compensation or whatever. So 
I, you know, I'm now reading for my third time Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand. And, you know, it's a fine balance between having a society that works for everybody and a society that, you know, just works for a few. So I, I don't really have any smart thing to say about it. I'm just in the inquiry about it. But I, I think the other thing that's, that I think a lot about right now is, is how did we get to this point where, you know, myself as a 64-year-old rich white guy, I'm, I'm scared to open my mouth. And it's um, very, it's, it's like I feel like I can't have an opinion on, on anything without um, being skewered and I'm wrong and, um, and, you know, maybe I'm just old and, you know, I have, you know, I'm, I'm living in a, in a different age, but I keep wondering why the We Too movement came up and, and the validity, validity of it, I think is quite right. I think, you know, there's, there's so much in it that's correct. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I go back to, World War II and World War One, where maybe 50, 60 million men died. And then you come out of that, you have a military way of being and you come into corporations and you treat and operate corporations like the military and how different that type of structure is from how I, my observation of how women communicate and talk and lead, which is more like you know, talk around the barrel for and you just keep going until you, you know, everyone kind of comes up with the, with the right decision and then you move forward. And how, how that is in, in juxtaposition to the military, you know, I say it and you do what I say type of thing. So I think there's something it's in an there. Interesting but world, isn't it? Those are the two things. Uh, are, what about you, Howard? What are you working on and power? studying and learning about? Uh, well, I, I'm really focused on how we lead, mm-hmm. all kinds, all organizations, how we lead in families, how, how we lead in for-profits, how we lead in non, not-for-profits, and I'm concerned. You know, even though I do believe that servant leadership is moving forward, I look at how what the political climates that we are experiencing, both not so much in Canada, although a little bit, but, but in the United States and around the world. And I'm worried that we're headed towards this you know, back towards this autocratic style of leadership. It's not even a style. It's, you know, autocratic leadership. And uh, that seems to be, you know, that people starting to think that's okay. And, you know, half, almost half the country in America thinks uh, calling people by names is, okay, you know, bad names is okay. And mm. it's not. Right. And, and I'd hate to see that businesses, I think, are far ahead of politicians. And the military is even farther ahead from businesses. You know, servant leadership is alive and well, in the, and certainly in the U.S. military, yeah, because it has to be, because they recruit all these young people, and, you know, if they're going to keep recruiting the people, it's, it's not going to be easy So uh, to do if they don't treat them well. But, um, you know, I stay focused on that, and I read everything I can read about it. And, and I talk to lots of people about it. I want to learn, and particularly from young people, is, is, you know, what do you think? You know, we have Amazon here that gets kind of pluses and minuses for working at Amazon. And so I talk to lots of Amazon employees trying to learn and to find out what's working there and what doesn't work. Not for me to do anything there, but just so that I can learn from them. You know, we went to deal with Microsoft here, 
have abusive to their people. And Microsoft had a 10, 15-year uh, spread of just not producing any results. Mm -hmm. And then they put a new guy in as CEO who totally started focusing on people. And the results turn around, and now people want to go to work for Microsoft again. So, you know, I just I want to continue to learn about that. I want to continue to hone my skills, even though I'm not leading. The only organization I'm leading is me, and I want to do a good yep. job of that. So I continue to learn and to grow, and uh, I read everything I can get my hands on. It's fascinating you bring that up because that's one of the things that I've learned recently as well is that uh, the, the U.S. military in particular, we have this picture in our head because we watch all the movies and the TV shows that it's kind of that old world, what you were talking about, Chip, and uh, there's just a lot of yelling and, um, and finger pointing and, and direction. But recently, having had conversations with people within all three major divisions of the, the military, they are, you're right, Howard, they are so far ahead in terms of learning environment and leadership. Uh, most people wouldn't know that, but... Um, the programs that they're working on and, and the, the types of leaderships that they're, they're working with uh, are ahead of business by an absolute mile. It's fascinating to learn about that. All right, gents, uh, where, can, where can people find you and follow along with all that you're doing? Uh, an opportunity to plug your books or your websites or whatever you want. Chip, where can people find you? Okay, well, great. I have a, a, a website, chipwilson.com, and, uh, and all my information is on there. also on Twitter and LinkedIn every day with something about leadership. Awesome, fellas. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation. I've written down a, a whole page of notes, and I'm sure everyone at home has as well. Um, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.